0: Raymond, welcome to Mind Body Solution.
1: Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you. I'm looking. I've been looking forward to this conversation the entire week, um, and I think the best way to start this conversation, having read most of your books, obviously not all. You have written over thirty seven books, uh, way too much for the average human to comprehend. You you said it yourself. You write faster than most people seem to read, but I think a great way to start this conversation would be to ask, ask you, it. what is the connection between the mind and the body, Raymond? I,
1: I suppose my answer to that is, A, of course I don't know, and neither does anybody else. Mm-hmm. But in a way, thinking of the very word connection, it, it implies as two kinds of things, the mind and the body, or there is stuff called mind and there is stuff called body. And my way out of that question to say I'm an ontological agnostic? I don't believe that we know what kinds of stuffs there are, and we certainly can't reduce the kinds of stuffs there are just to, uh, as it were, two substances, mind and body, because we all know the problem when you think about trying to relate those two. Descartes made it very clear that the mind, by definition, has no spatial location, and the body, by definition, most certainly does, So how does something that has no spatial location interact with something that does have a spatial location? So I think to ask the question in that way uh, is probably to make things unnecessarily difficult for oneself, perhaps. And uh, because I'm an ontological agnostic, I'm liberated then, instead of trying to explain and gather up everything into a unity, is to look more closely at the rich multiplicity of things. And so one can look at mental phenomena such as thoughts. One can look at the extraordinary um, properties of our bodies and the way they're different from properties of non-living matter and so on. Um, and at the end of that long inquiry, one still doesn't answer a question, which I think is probably poorly posed in the first place. The idea that the two, mind and body, there is something called a mind, which is rather analogous to something called a body, and they have somehow to be connected.
0: Mm. I love that that term, ontologically agnostic, Um, because, I mean, when we think about our perception of reality, there's so many ways we're limited to our biological system, and there is no inherent way of finding truth. With that being said, what would you consider some sort of a ontological truth that is universal?
1: Yes. I mean, first of all, I don't think we can appeal to biology to the limit on what we can know or understand. Mm-hmm. Because if biology was going to impose that limit, we wouldn't have the concept of biology, even less the concept of the universe. What biological properties would possibly generate the concept of biology? It's a kind of argument that I hopefully will discuss when I talk about free will. So... Um, appealing to, as it were, our biological properties as an explanation of the limitation of our ability to understand how mind and body relate, is, I think, barking up the wrong tree. Mind you, having said that, you're in good company. Colin McGinn, in a very famous paper in 1989, said the reason we cannot understand um, how neural activity generates consciousness, how the water of brain activity creates the wine of consciousness, the reason we can't understand that Is due to our biological constraints, and I said, I think it. Well, hang on a moment, Colin. How did you manage to stand out, courtesy of your biology? Biology stand outside the discussion and see that it's biology that makes it insoluble. And a a response is still awaited. Um, Yeah. So,
0: if I mean that is quite intriguing. I mean, in a sense, how is it possible that we can even notice that we have these limitations? somehow the system has evolved a way to recognize that there is this limitation. Is that what you're trying to say? That inherently, although we know that we have these limitations, we still have some sort of access to these limitations and the knowledge about it?
1: Yes. I mean, to see that something is limited is to go beyond those limits. I mean, something that Wittgenstein famously said, you know, you'd have to be outside of those limits to see in what sense we are limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and so the appeal to biology as a constraint on our knowledge and understanding is actually to appeal to one part of our knowledge, what little we know about biology, to explain the constraint on all our knowledge. And that clearly is um, slightly anomalous.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there are interesting questions, you know, coming back to your original question about the relationship between the body and the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, There is certainly, me as a neuroscientist in my earlier existence as a medic, I mean, there's clearly an interesting question about the relationship between neural activity and consciousness. I mean, probably one of the most well-trodden parts of philosophy at the moment. Mm -hmm. And there's something fundamentally different between neural activity and, say, for example, the feeling of yellow or the thought that something is enjoyable or whatever, all of those things don't seem to look like neural activity. One thing I'm pretty sure as a neuroscientist is that um, we need neural activity to have any kind of consciousness. So if you chop my head off, my IQ falls quite perceptibly. Um, If you bash me on the head and will remove my brain, clearly end of analysis consciousness. So the brain and what the brain does is a necessary condition, that's for sure. Of our conscious activity, but it isn't the whole story. And trying to understand why it isn't the whole story and what shape the whole story would have, I think that's where philosophers really have got stuck. Very interestingly, stuck in many cases, but they've got stuck.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's such a deep philosophical history when it comes to this mind body problem um, relating to what is consciousness. If you had to think about your reading, um, From the time you've started in this field, moving to this point, which philosophers do you believe had the most impact on you as a philosopher and neuroscientist, as the man you are today, um, with all the beliefs you have, who do you think have played the biggest roles in shaping and forming these beliefs?
1: I think that, as it were, the flower of one's thought grows in the humus of previous philosophers. So I wouldn't be able to. I'm sure Descartes will have had an influence. And I'm sure Hobbes, the first philosopher I ever read when I read at school, will have had an influence. Um, uh, but I suppose the first philosopher I was consciously influenced by was Heidegger, Martin Heidegger.
2: And I wrote a monograph
1: of him, on him some 40 years later. I read Heidegger as a medical student. Was well, it the so- first <laughs> being at time or... Being and time. I think the later Heidegger is less interesting. The, uh, the Heidegger of being and time is very interesting.
2: Mm.
1: Um, of mm. course, he dodged the mind-body problem. He said it isn't as if we have this kind of uh, mind imprisoned in a body. Mm. We actually, our fundamental state is our state of being there, Dasein, which doesn't, as it were, pick, separate the body from the mind. And, and I, was very, I, I was very impressed by that. I became less impressed the more carefully I read it. And when I published my monograph on Heidegger, I pointed out that dealing with so-called being there, or Dasein, as he called it, doesn't explain why I'm a, a particular in a particular there. So I, you're in um, South Africa at the moment. I'm in um, Stockport. It must have something to do with the location of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Heidegger doesn't deal with. Um, Kant doesn't, by the way, and I think he makes the same mistake as Kant. Kant, you'll be familiar with, as he thought of um, the world uh, was, uh, or nature, was, in a sense, the product of the synthetic activity of the mind. We have this great, massive jumble of sensations, but what turns it into something that's located in space and time and that is causally connected and so on is the activity of the mind. Well, that again is a problem because if we don't have space and time prior to the activity of the mind, why does your mind basically see the room that you're in and my mind sees the room that I'm in? And we have to appeal to the location of our bodies to explain that. So you see, the the, the fact that I'm ontological agnostic doesn't let me off the hook of being puzzled in lots of ways. It just means that I'm so far not impressed by anybody's attempt to understand where mind sits in what we call the, the material world. I
0: mean, but There's that's, even a and yes, I mean that's exactly why I asked who, who have influenced you the most, because as an ontological agnostic, um, there must be some sort of an epistemological realism to certain views of yours. Uh, and these must've been shaped by certain people. You've written quite a lot on time. Uh, yes. What, what inspired you to go down that route? Was it specifically in being in time that led you to that route or Was it something else?
1: Not really, because I think the time bit of being in time is not terribly impressive, although one of the central ideas of Heidegger is that as conscious beings, we are actually not located entirely in the time we are at. So my body is at time T at the moment, but Raymond Tallis self basically reaches into the past, and that past makes sense of a future that he reaches into, so that I'm not confined to the time that my material basis is confined to. but that was, I think, an an interesting thought. But my main, uh, the main driver for um, writing about time was to rescue time from the jaws of physics. Uh, It seemed to me that the version of time presented by physics impoverishes it to an extraordinary degree to the point where some physicists now, where time has just been reduced, Essentially, to numbers, some physicists wonder whether time has any kind of reality, um, and they do terrible things to time. I mean, you th- think of the number of times you've seen time in physics put under a numerator. Mm. You know, take speed, distance over time. Well, what a thing to do to time to put it under a flat line. Worse still, to multiply time by itself. I mean, imagine multiplying a brag and break weekend by itself. You know, what would you get out of that? You're referring
0: to empty e- speed guess- at that point.
1: Well, MC squared is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, if you look at C squared, it extracts the speed of light and then multiplies it by itself. What a strange thing to do. And all of this, of course, is strange, but it's incredibly powerful. I mean, the fact I'm talking to you thousands of miles away and I don't even have to raise my voice. You can hear me thousands of miles away. is clearly a um, evidence that uh, of the power of science to get some things very, very right. Mm-hmm. But in getting some things very, very right, it actually um, empties the world. You have a totally anemic view of the world. The world ultimately becomes a set of mathematical structures. Mm-hmm. So it, it was the anxiety about time being misrepresented that uh, drove me to write this rather very fat book on time. Some 720 pages of small print and an un- unbearable number of uh, you know notes and so on. But I, I was concerned, first of all, to rescue time from the jaws of physics from being reduced to the fourth dimension. I mean I, it's very helpful for scientists to represent time as it were, as if it were a fourth dimension. But in time is fundamentally different from space. So it isn't really one of the lads, as it were, you know three of space and one of time. It's really fundamentally different. The other is that uh, in um, human time we have tense science can't deal with tense. And it's interesting that Einstein was very uh, anxious about that. He said he felt really sorry that there was nothing at all in his special or general theory that gave any meaning to this concept of now, never mind ago or the future, all of these things that are central to human life. And it's interesting also that in a very famous interview, again towards the end of his life, he said, actually, uh, there's nothing in my system that can cope with the very idea of a clock, or, by the way, a measuring rod. So there is major deficits in the scientific capture of science, draining out—sorry, scientific capture on, on time, draining out its richness, its complexity, and missing missing out very, very important dimensions of time. Most importantly, tensed time.
0: So, if you, so you, the concern there is this: the scientism towards. Viewing everything in the universe. I mean, this is a purely reductive approach and how it just completely annihilates all meaning, all values, um, the very essence of existence. I know that. Okay, wait. So, how would you then define time? If you, as as someone who's not a particularly a physicist, but more uh, in the neurosciences, etc., how how does one then define time?
1: I don't think you can. I don't think you can define it. It, it is an absolutely fundamental thing. Mm. Take um, There have been loads of ways of, uh, of, of defining time and also trying to identify where its so-called direction comes from, the so-called arrows of time. But um, R- Richard Feynman, I think, was a good joker. He once said that time is what stops everything happening at once. And he was obviously being um, slightly ironical. But that's the nearest you get to a definition of time. But, of course, it, it, that definition itself builds in an idea of time at once simultaneity so there is no definition of time uh, that doesn't basically rely on the very notion of time somebody once said time is our perception of the sequence of events well hang on sequence you mean our perception of the temporal sequence of events another circular definition of time Mm -hmm. so time is one of those fundamental things that cannot be reduced to anything else um, and therefore I can escape a duty to uh, define it in terms of anything else.
0: When you, th- when you think of Richard Feynman's work and the way he approaches a lot of the physics and his approach to quantum physics, quantum physics etc., I mean, he doesn't seem to have that um, purely reductive approach where he, he he sort of eradicates all meaning. He seems to write with this poetic, beautiful nature. How do you think he's able to then... Uh, consolidate both these views, this purely scientific one, and this also the search for love, longing, meaning.
1: I I don't think he unites the two. I mean, it seems to me he's he's written some obviously very profound uh, papers in quantum electrodynamics, which I'm afraid are way beyond my pay grade. Um, But he also said uh, something I think is uh, absolutely true. He said that um, anyone who thinks they understand quantum mechanics does not understand quantum mechanics. And I think he felt that it was a very, very useful and brilliant tool. But I think he was quite uncertain as to what extent it was revealing reality as it is itself. And he certainly didn't think that it filled the whole piece. It left nothing, uh, uh, no space over for the kind of things you just referred to, love, happiness, desire, and so on. A bit different from some physicists who've, def- who've basically confuse the world with the physical world, and the physical world with the world of physicists. I was thinking of Steven Weinberg, for whom really, as far as he's concerned, the social world is explained by people, people are explained by biology, biology is explained by chemistry, and chemistry is explained by physics. And ultimately, uh, the true account of how things are is to be found in physics. My own view, actually, is nature isn't a snob it doesn't actually think there are certain scales of attention that are closer to the truth than others. Many uh, physicists, and indeed many philosophers who are slightly in love with physics, um, many philosophers uh, essentially think that there is our privileged scales in the universe, that the microphysical scale is where the truth of what is, is to be found. And I don't think nature has a hierarchy of scales. Um, other philosophers have said that, and I have to say I agree with it. I think um, macroscopic objects such as herons are just as real as muons. In fact, confidentially, off the record, I think swans are more real than muons, and herons herons are more real than muons. But basically, it seems to me that we tend to privilege those aspects of science that are most general, but they become most general by losing particular content. And that are most powerful, and of course, physics is the most powerful of all the sciences. Do you think and they? Don't get me wrong. Sorry. Yes.
0: Do you think they do this because, I mean, looking at us as just fermions and bosons is akin to what the universe was originally like when it was amidst the beginning of the Big Bang. Do you think that's why they have this desire to to take it back to that point or to that scale? That's
1: a really good question because it would indicate then that entities like you and me have um, basically emerged rather late in, in the order of things, but as a final ordering and grouping of things that were there first. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. interesting when you think about the notion of a, an evolution from the Big Bang, then on to planets, then on to life, then on to conscious life, and then on to you and me. Um, that story is a pretty good scientific story. But actually, there's something very strange about thinking of the totality of things in the absence of some consciousness to gather it together. Mm-hmm. Thinking about a temporal sequence of events without actually some consciousness backward gaze to gather it together. So I have quite a problem about, about
0: uh, uh, thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, sorry. Yes. Yeah. I'm continue. I was. Sorry. Anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Uh, Well, it's just, uh, I I mean, I think you've put your finger on something that's very, uh, very important as to why we sort of, the the standard story we have is in the beginning was something sort of atom-like or whatever. Actually, in the beginning was, as you know, uh, instability in the quantum vacuum. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always think, hmm, law governed instability in the quantum vacuum. Now, you and I think a vacuum is nothing, true or false. Just because it's a quantum vacuum doesn't make it any less nothing uh, than if it was uh, a non-quantum vacuum. And it it seems that many physicists have uh, replaced a creation story with a creative accounting story. Mm -hmm. So you get this wobbliness in a quantum vacuum, and somehow that delivers an excess of matter over antimatter. It's a story that seems to me to
0: have very little going for it. Uh, I think it also also explains our sort of... Um, what, is, what is inside a black hole, for example, because we assume before the Big Bang it was some sort of a singularity. And I think that that quest to understand it perhaps might have some sort of an explanation for why we're here, what, what, what is the purpose of all of this. Perhaps there is some sort of a teleology. Um, it's almost like a, an epistemology. I mean, as you say, it, we're ontologically agnostic about all these things, but we're still somehow longing for an epistemological truth why are we doing this
1: yes i mean it would be nice to believe that meaning was baked into the universe from the beginning as opposed to waiting for us to turn up for meaning to come because we are pretty small things in the universe Mm -hmm. i mean think of your pinprick bonds you know how many four liters is it compared with the size of the universe you know our heads and yet Having said that, our pinprick bonsters can actually use, say, the word universe, which is rather extraordinary. And we can uh, basically send out our equations into you know, 10 to the power of 23 space and so on. So, But there is it would be nice to think that uh, my meaning, the meanings in my life, were, as it were, baked in right from the beginning. So they're really meaningful meanings. Mm-hmm. But If you look at most of our meanings in life, it seems highly unlikely they would, um, as it were, be written into the Big Bang, you know, my getting cross because I'm second in a queue when it, somebody else has jumped the queue. That doesn't seem terribly likely to be the kind of business that would exercise the Big Bang. I mean, um, but I, having said that, I would hate to give your listeners the wrong impression. I'm not anti science, I'm anti scientism, the notion that science is the only way of explaining things. You and I both know as medics, my gosh, how science has utterly transformed our profession and essentially you know thank you science for increased life expectancy increased health expectancy increased fun expectancy you know what it's how it's transformed our life the science produces truths that are incredibly powerful in terms of prediction we know and understand much more and in terms of our agency Mm -hmm. courtesy of science and all the bonkers theories of quantum mechanics, you and I are able to converse at normal volume, despite being separated by thousands of miles. So there's no doubt about the fundamental truth of science. Mm-hmm. The problem is the claim that then it is the sum total of all truths. That yes. somehow the sort of things you were talking about, the meaning and value, they become secondary, marginal and mm-hmm. possibly illusory truths. And I, I don't agree with that.
0: I mean, and we also know within medicine itself, uh, there are so many disadvantages or downsides of science. Take psychiatry, for example. I mean, a lot of our treatments are not really up to standard. And it's because of this fact that we, we lack uh, a fundamental understanding of this mind-body problem. And um, you see it with the biological revolutions that have taken place over time. I mean, there were many times where scientists or doctors assumed that biology was going to save psychiatry or those who are yeah. mentally ill. And yet- Time and time again, we see this failure of, of science providing us with the, with the answers we need, um, which, which is quite fascinating considering it's taken us so far.
1: I think you're so right. And it just seems to me, you know, with, with neuropsychiatry, think, oh, at last, psychiatry's got its own organ. It's up there with cardiology and nephrology and so on. We've got our own giblet at last, so, so we're now respectful. Because it doesn't work out like that. I mean, clearly there are correlations between moods and distributions of neurotransmitters and so on and so forth. But it doesn't quite work out so clearly as that. I mean, you're far too young to remember this, but I think it was the early 90s when Prozac, for example, was going to solve all psychiatric problems. You uh, you remember that, do you? Perhaps you are going to say, uh, I'm surprised you do because it's... 30 years ago, but it seriously was going to uh, transform because it was basically a drug that had a specific impact on particular receptor sites. And we could correlate depletion in receptor sites with mood, et cetera, et cetera. But people's moods are complicated things. They're not just, you know, raising and lowering of a certain sort of tone of mind. Mm. They relate to a world and you don't find worlds in brains. You find, you know, neural activity. So you're right. We 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 can um, scientism uh, is a threat to certainly some aspects of medicine. I mean, my own area of expertise, such as it was, was in strokes and epilepsy. But if I take epilepsy, of course, in my time we had more and more drugs, and some of them were more efficacious. But I felt that dealing with a person who has epilepsy, it wasn't. It was a person who had epilepsy. So the dialogue was a little bit about damping down those seizures, but an awful lot about living with epilepsy and all the worry someone might have. And should they tell the boss they've got it? And when are they going to drive again? And all those worrying things and how they trade off sleepiness from the drugs with suppressing uh, the um, seizures. So uh, suddenly realized there's a person who has epilepsy and we can understand the seizures quite well. You know, when somebody has a particular sign of seizure, it does seem to correlate uh, with activity in a particular part of the brain, spontaneous activity. On the other hand, that's not the whole story, that's just the beginning of the story. You know, what does Mrs. Smith think about these funny feelings? How is she going to talk to herself and to her husband or about it? You know, so yes, the brain is a sort of ground floor, but we're not just the ground
0: floor. I think that forms part of the the basis of why I started this podcast, I mean not only was it because i 'm i 'm curious as to how we are these beings, these perceiving persons able to experience reality i 've always wanted to know wanted to know how do we get to this point, but another thing was just to show how difficult both theoretically and practically the mind body problem really is, uh, and it 's because of the time in mental health and you see how flawed a lot of our thinking when we take even some of the aspects of the, the disease model and the way we look at it and apply it to psychiatric patients, how much we, we, we it's almost, we do more harm in that case. And there the are various, um, uh, there's a raise of evidence. Uh, if you look at the anti-psychiatry movement, if you look at a lot of the cultures that exist uh, and the, the curiosities around this field, it, it exposes some sort of a a, a lack of understanding between this connection. I know we just discussed that, even that word connection between the mind and body, but it exposes the fact that there is some sort of a problem here. We lack certain understandings. And that's why there's certain um, professors in psychiatry and philosophy like uh, Bill Fulford, Giovanni Stangolini, Saz and Parnas, a lot of these psychiatrists now trying to take a more phenomenological view and approach to psychiatry. Professor Verdi von Staden, et cetera, they're using what's called person-centered medicine, taking a more pluralistic view and approach to this field. Do you think that is the better alternative to the current biopsychosocial approach? I
1: think it's one that's, you know, it goes back a long way to cold yaspers and so on at the beginning of the last century. And clearly that must be a very important dimension of psychiatry. I mean, if you think what's happened in psychiatry, that if, again, the... DSM. Uh, basically the first iteration of it was in 1970 or something like that. I mean, uh, sorry, TCM and uh, basically it was uh, had about 130 diagnoses. It's now got about 550. Now clearly brand new diseases haven't sprung up. It's more the way we characterize categorize and respond to human unhappiness uh, or human difference. Uh, And one can't believe for a moment that all these brand new diseases are sort of natural kinds Mm -hmm. in the way that diabetes is a natural kind, although coping with diabetes isn't a natural kind. So I think there is there is a big, big problem there. Yes. I mean, the problem really of understanding any kind of relationship between consciousness, say, and the brain, you don't even have to go to the complex things like sadness or paranoid states or whatever. Just look at vision. I mean, I can remember having a long discussion with my lovely tutor at Oxford back in the 1960s. And there was no doubt about it. So I'm looking at a glass. The light bounces off the glass, enters my eye, tickles up my visual pathways, and something happens in my visual cortex, the back of my head. Standard story. And then it may go on for me to act in response to that. Well, actually, that's only half the story. That causal chain from the glass to my visual cortex is only half the story because what happens in the visual cortex, if it were the the whole story, would have somehow to reach out, back up its own causal ancestry to the glass. Mm. Nothing in nature happens like this. Uh, And so, in other words, one of the fundamental properties of conscious, one of the fundamental marks of the mind Is intentionality, which is what I've been talking about, the aboutness of conscious experience. So when I look at the glass, I'm actually, my experience is about something outside of other than myself. Mm -hmm. So already at this kind of basic level of perception, we have a um, difficulty of fitting consciousness into our normal understanding of the natural, physical, material world. So no wonder poor psychiatrists are having trouble at in biologizing what happens. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, this would be con- <laughs> <lives>. <laughs> the third biological wave of psychiatry um, because of the influx of new neuroimaging, functional MRIs, etc. So the hope is that this is the, this is the final time that we will get it right. I just want to make it clear. I'm not anti-psychiatry. I think the strides we've made yeah. in psychiatry are phenomenal and excellent, but I do agree that there is there is clearly something we we are missing. Um, we, we're clearly not taking this person into account when we're approaching these patients, and uh, it can improve quite a bit. But with that, you you mentioned intentionality. Let's discuss that because a lot of people tend to misunderstand this term uh, uh, because yes. of its average use. Um, when people think of intentions they just think of absolutely Absolutely, it's not you you're talking about the aboutness can you just briefly define and discuss
1: certainly it? certainly i mean it's a it's a very ancient term in philosophy it began with the stoics and then it was a very uh, important concept in medieval philosophy but it really has come into its own in the philosophy of the last 200 years through a chap called franz brentano mm-hmm. who said essentially that the mark of the mental was aboutness intentionality that it reaches out to something other than itself. He too regretted the use of that word. He said, well, perhaps people are going to confuse it with intention mm-hmm. and it isn't about intention. It's, it, it's, it's essentially the fact that uh, mental contents are about things other than themselves, uh, that they seem as it were, in inverted commas, to reach out uh, to things other than themselves. Clearly they don't reach through space. Uh, the light that comes from the glass into my visual cortex is traveling through space and its effects are traveling through space. But my gaze is not in that sense traveling through space. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, neuroscience is very good at explaining how the light gets in and what it does, but not how the gaze looks out. Mm-hmm. That's, that's And, and that's the, the outward gaze is, if you like, a, a paradigm case of intentionality
0: when you think about theories like when you think about theories like that of Daniel Dennett's and the multiple drafts theory you think about Keith Frankish the illusionist theory certain reductive approaches perhaps the eliminative eliminativist theories consciousness um, do you think they're lacking this account for intentionality
1: I think they are and that's why they're rather hostile to the very idea of intentionality I mean for Dennett he wants to say that the mind basically is the properties of the brain And that the properties of the brain are essentially properties we see throughout nature in photosynthesis, continental drift and so on. There's a very famous passage which he says that. But of course, intentionality doesn't fit. So he doesn't like intentionality. He doesn't like quania, the fact that there is a feeling of what it's like to experience yellow or whatever. Um, So he doesn't like it. He wants to set them aside. Someone once rather cruelly said that his book Consciousness Explained was really should have been called Consciousness Evaded, and I think that's true. Um, well, so he, he really explained away. I beg your Consciousness explained away. That's another version. You're quite right. Absolutely. Keith Frankish is interesting because he says, "Well, I know consciousness is not an illusion because in order to have the illusion of consciousness, I'd have to be conscious." You know, uh, to believe that I'm conscious when I'm not is still a state of, as it were, consciousness. So he tries to wriggle out of um, his own idea that consciousness is an illusion. But the fact remains is it's utterly inescapable. I mean, my hearing the sound of my own voice in my head, my hearing your, uh, the sound of your voice, it is A, undeniable, and B, it's not just acu- acoustic tremors in the air, you know, as they would be on Mars or whatever. Uh, it, these are things that I'm experiencing, you're experiencing, and then beyond that experience, they have meaning, um, which is clearly not true of physical events outside of conscious beings, or physical events not encountered by conscious beings.
0: Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you think that the intentionality that we're discussing is similar to, I'm not sure if you're familiar with 4E cognition, uh, and the way they talk about the fact that we're embodied beings, embedded in a whatever environment we're in and we're also continuously enacting upon that environment because I think that enacting is similar to this intentionality I mean environment and you always have this um, interaction occurring you think that's somehow encapsulates a similar essence of what intentionality is
1: it's interesting isn't it I mean um uh, uh, an activism is something I criticize quite strongly in the latest book. There's a I've developed I've devoted an appendix to it, not because it hasn't got some insights, but because it goes too far. Mm-hmm. And activism basically says that consciousness is not a spectator sport. Mm-hmm. And that's true. You know, I I'm not just conscious, as it were, sitting in the in a theater watching things going on. I'm engaged. So that glass is something I can pick up now and have a drink from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's an affordance, it's something that says. You know, you can do something with me if you like. So the, the inactivists are very conscious that consciousness is um, connected with the possibility of action. I have no problem with that as long as they don't make the connection too tight, because otherwise actions then become mere reactions. Mm-hmm. And even quite simple and sophisticated actions of you and I are not simple reactions. There is an interval, a gap between the, uh, that to which I'm responding, And uh, the response. I mean, think of the sort of things you do every day. You decide, are you going to see Mrs. Jones? You better check out to see how she is. Well, you have to, perhaps you get in your car and you drive to the hospital and you walk down the ward, check with with sister that she's still in, uh, then go and see Mrs. Jones, introduce yourself and then explain why you've been a bit concerned. Now, that succession of actions are as remote from a reaction as is imaginary as you could imagine so although an activists are quite right that we don't just waltz through the world as if it were a, a, a nice film that we're enjoying we're not as it were tied into the world so tightly as they would like uh, it, when when they try and correct what they think is an error mm-hmm. i mean one of their great heroes for some an activist is heidegger mm-hmm. who says that you know our, our natural state is what he calls absorbed coping Well, yes and no. When I'm rushing to get something, clearly, a lot of things that I'm doing, I'm not consciously doing. So when I'm running for a bus, I don't think right leg, left leg, mind that doctor, and so on and so forth. I actually just rush for the bus. Mm -hmm. But behind that rushing for the bus, all that automatic activity, that, as you were, embodied cognition, there is a purpose. Why am I rushing for the bus? I'm rushing for the bus to catch it, so I'm not late for the interview. So all of our actions still, even though there is a lot of automaticity in them um, and, you know, they are provoked to some extent by our environment, they, are, they have a purpose uh, which reaches beyond the present moment. I mean, uh, nearly everything we do reaches beyond the present moment, doesn't it? Even if you're hurrying, so you're not going to be late to get home tonight because you've got to look after the babies and the wife will be furious and all that sort of stuff. I mean, how complicated that is. So inactivists <clears throat> have corrected some things, but I think they overcorrected it. Certainly some inactivists, as a result of which you have some forms of activism in which we're stitched right back into the natural world again. There's a complete collapsing of the distance from which our agency is normally exercised.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's, let's take that thought uh, with running towards a bus um, and have a little thought experiment. Um, let's say you as a physicist we're able to also, you also have access to some of the most modern technology possible where you're able to actually compute every single atom and element that goes into somehow creating the biology and thereafter the psychology and thereafter the physics of you running towards that bus. Do you think that is physically possible? Do you think that is something that can provide us with information of what you would do next? in terms of a deterministic approach to existence.
1: That's a lovely way of expressing the, of Laplace's demon idea, isn't it? Um, you, your listeners may not be entirely familiar with that, but uh, th- this is really an example of Laplace's demon. Laplace said as follows, But if there were a demon who knew my initial conditions, what condition I'm in now, and the laws of nature that govern me either at a molecular level or organic level or whatever, that demon would be able to predict where I am next. There is only one future possibility. And my answer to that is, well, hang on a moment. Where did that demon come from? Where did that demon get the idea of something called a future? Let's remember when it comes to material objects, they are as things are at time T. So this glass at time T is glass at time T. It has no future, it has no past. I might anticipate a future. I might recall its past, but itself, so basically, where does this demon come from? This demon has been imported into the material world in order to have the properties that I have that don't fit into the material world. Namely, the ability to add things up, to uh, have the idea of laws of nature, and to imagine a future. None of those is possible for a material system understood in, through the lens of physics. Mm-hmm. And that's true, likewise, of the imaginary demon Looking at all my molecular uh, composition at any given time and seeing, ah, oh, this is the way his molecules are going. He thinks he's doing it, but it's just happening.
0: So, if this you just a reasonable answer. Taking into account the uh, significance of Benjamin Bett's work uh, regarding the neural twitches that occur uh, milliseconds before someone's actions, um, how do you reconcile this? Uh, how do you explain this away? Or what are, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Is it worthwhile, should we remind ourselves just what he found? Yes. yes think- and then I shall tear it apart down to its individual mm-hmm. molecules, of course. So, so what, what Libet, and much later, um, John Dylan Haynes, using um, magnetic resonance image imaging, did was to look at people making decisions. Let's go for Libet, because the principles are the same, all experiments, but he relied on electroencephalography. And what he did, he had subjects who asked just to move their hand. Very simple movement. And they could do it in their own time. So it wasn't prompted by anything else. It was a voluntary movement. And Libert observed various things. He observed when the hand moved. He also observed something called the readiness potential, the Bereitshev potential, uh, which essentially is activity in the frontal cortex, uh, which says essentially um, it's supposed to be a preparedness to make a movement. So there appears to be a marker of preparedness in the brain to make a movement. Now, the cunning thing about um, livets experiment is he asked the subjects to time when they felt the intention or the urge to move. So he got them to look at a screen and they would note where the spot on the screen was when they decided to move. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got two important pieces of information. The brain prepared to make the move, and the subjects aware that they are ready, to, that they're going to make a move. And the shocking thing for those who are gullible is that, wow, the uh, brain prepares to make the movement about a third of a second before uh, the person's even aware of intending to make the move. So the brain is calling the shots. Uh, we do we, It's the brain who decided to make the move. Well, there are lots of methodological problems with that, and there's some serious ph- philosophical problems. Quick one on the methodological problems. First of all, it's not very clear anymore what the so-called resonance potential is. And it may be spontaneous fluctuations that the subject will tend to surf or take advantage of when they're going to make a move. Secondly, the job that the subject is doing, which is timing their own urge to make the move by looking at the screen, is very, very complex indeed. So that's something else they're doing, which it'd be very difficult to dismiss, as it were, as unconscious brain activity. There are lots and other, other methodological problems, but there's a philosophical problem. Take Mrs. Smith, she's a subject uh, for this study. What does Mrs. Smith do? She just moves her hand. Whoa, no, she doesn't. A week before, she actually saw there was advert in the paper for Professor Livert who wanted to do some studies on the human brain because it might one day help people with brain damage. She happens to know the little boy next door has brain damage, and she's a sort of altruistic person. She thinks, God, you know, perhaps I'll help. So she then rings up the laboratory and says, look, I'd like to be a subject in this study. The night before, she sets the alarm to make sure she doesn't oversleep and very annoy Professor Libet by turning up late. She then sets off, she catches that bus she's been running for to take her to the hospital or wherever the experiment is. Uh, She arrives at the hospital, gets some instructions where to go, and then goes into the laboratory. She sits down and she listens to Professor Libet. She's sort of a bit worried about the white coats and all that machinery. Are they really going to give me electric shock or something? But in the end, she trusts these people and she understands the instructions. And so eventually she sits down and goes, woof, just moves her finger. So what's this lady done? Has she moved her finger? No, she's taken part in Professor Libet's experiment. And the field of intention that involves taking part in the Professor Libet's extension, is absolutely boundless. And it's in that boundless field you would expect to find her um, the action of her the exercise of her free will. Just moving your hand is neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Deciding to be really altruistic and help Professor Libet now that's what I call free will. And you won't find mm-hmm. that uh, uh, basically trailing in the wake of a readiness potential a third or a second later.
0: It reminds me... The work done by Professor Robert Spolsky in his book, Behave, where he talks about how whenever we make any sort of decision, we must always, human beings and human nature, we, we should always take into account what's happening seconds before the decision, hours before the decision, days before the decision, months, years, to the beginning of time. In essence, if nothing happens in isolation, everything is connected to some extent.
1: And, and and we've got to be careful that doesn't then lead you to feel there's a causal chain that leads backwards and backwards and backwards that we have no control over. Mm. It's, it's more to think, say this conversation you and I are having, maybe two or three weeks ago, we decided to have this conversation. In other words, I had an explicit sense of the future tense. And the future tense doesn't exist in the material world. Don't trust me. Ask Mr. Einstein. He'll tell you it doesn't. So that and that future tense, my desire to talk to you, because I was very interested in your email. All that draws on a lot of me, the past, an explicit past, not a not a past that's merely, as it were, uh, an unconscious cause of um, a, an effect. So uh, Robert Sapolsky is absolutely right uh, that it's that our actions make sense only in relation to something called ourselves. Mm.
0: So overall, if you had to take your your view on free will, uh, what is your take on it? Oh, I'm beg your pardon, on if if you had to summarize your view on free will, what free will? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes. I'm, I
1: believe we have it. I'm 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 a compatibilist. I have absolutely no doubt that uh, the flow of material events is um, in nature is. It, it, it basically it is determined mm-hmm. um, action and reaction are equal and opposite like it or not that's the end of the story i also believe that there are connections between events which we can predict uh to a great precision, quantum mechanics and so on and so forth so it looks as if uh my actions even my speaking now which is a material event looks as if it's caught up on a flow that I cannot control. So I've got a big problem. Basically, the laws of nature, which are by definition unbreakable, and causal connectedness seems to indicate uh, that I am not free. I'm not free in the sense of being the genuine source and origin of my actions. I'm not free in the sense of genuinely deflecting the, the cause the, the, the course of events. That's the sort of uh, what determinists feel, and people who are incompatibilists feel that freedom. Is, is is incompatible with, with, with uh, determinism. My, I, I have a different view of that. And in order to develop that view and to make sure that my f- notion of free will is compatible with determinism, I look critically at two things. I look critically at causes and I look critically at the laws of nature. Now, many of your listeners will know that David Hume really deconstructed the very notion of a cause. Mm -hmm. He said, basically, a causal relation, understand as material necessity, is something that we have imported in the world. It's our strong expectations that make it seem as if event A obliged event B to occur, that the lightning obliged the thunder to occur. I take it a bit deeper. I do humiliate causes in that way, but I take it a bit further and say, actually, teasing a part of the universe into discrete elements is the product of our subjective consciousness. And our stitching together the universe into causes and effects is very closely related to our sense of our own interests. So when I see something as a cause, it's because it's relevant to me. I mean, or because I, it it, it fits into the way I, I see the world. Take we think of lightning as a cause and thunder as, a, as an effect, but actually lightning itself is an effect mm-hmm. and thunder mm-hmm. itself is a cause. You know, think of all the Robins that get panic stricken because of thunder has happened and so on. In fact, that teasing apart of causes and effects and christening one a cause and one another effect is inseparable from our agency. So I think for that reason, we can set aside causation as an opposition, uh, as a barrier to a true agency. I think it's, a, it's, an, it's something that is inseparable from agency. But what about the laws of nature? Surely they're unbreakable. Depends what you, how you see laws. Most philosophers now don't really see laws in the way that laws used to be seen. Laws aren't outside of nature. They aren't horses that drive nature, nor horse riders that steer nature. They're absolutely inseparable from nature. Basically, the fact that nature behaves in a regular way doesn't imply you need regulators. Mm. So what, are, oh. what, what, what do we mean when we talk about the laws of nature? Well, we're talking about real patterns of events in the world. We're talking about the habits of nature, which are pretty regular. Thank heavens. I mean, without it, we couldn't have a predictable response to our actions. Mm. But what we do when we look at these and use these, particularly in science, is we extract from the habits of nature, so-called laws of science. There'll be one that we're all familiar with, Boyle's law. No pressure and volume are inversely related.
2: Now,
1: of course, in in, in the natural world, pressure and volume aren't separate Mm. and other so-called variables like temperature, viscosity and so on aren't separate. Nature doesn't separate those things. In discovering, in transforming the habits of nature, into the laws of science, we've done something rather remarkable. We've sat outside of nature, looked at it, and seen essentially that it has certain patterns which we can then manipulate. And I think it's a nice irony when you think of Boyle, Robert Boyle, suddenly realizing he's onto something and he's breathing faster and faster. His breathing is actually representing Boyle's law because he's increasing the size of his chest and reducing the pressure and in comes the gas and so on. So even though he's caught up in nature and his excitement about discovering Boyle's law, he actually is standing outside of nature in reducing one of nature's habits to uh, discrete laws, laws which can then be exploited. And indeed we do exploit, you know, in the uh, uh, all sorts of ways we use uh, natural laws. Think of all the complex laws that we exploit now, you and I having a conversation a thousand miles away and so on. So the laws of nature, really probably a bit of a misnomer. There are laws of science which are ways in which we represent the habits of nature mm. and arriving at those laws of science and indeed exploiting them as we do, we stand outside of nature. Mm-hmm. So we need not worry about laws, as it were, preventing free will. So there you go. That's my defence of free will. We, we also need to look at the peculiar nature of actions, but that's an, another story. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but <yeah, I> mean, look <laughs> okay, at... This peculiar nature of actions in the first place. Um, I know you're writing about free will at the moment. Uh, yes. Is this this is this the view you're going to put forward? This is
1: uh, I, I have put forward, and it'll be available in a book coming out on the 9th of September. Uh, <laughs> absolute bargain break. I don't know how much costs. But, <laughs> uh, but one of the things is to look at actions. Hmm. Say, for example, um, you you and I are having our conversation, which we set up weeks ago. What a strange succession of events. You don't see that kind of succession of events, as it were, as an undeflected expression of the habits of nature. You and I have worked on this. We have done it with a sense of the future. We've drawn a sense of past. You have got all the clever technology. You've thought about all the really good questions. All of that. Uh, it's, it's not like a sequence of events, like a flow of water or all the other things we see in nature even like something complex, like a growing of a tree. The reason is, is because it's entirely bespoke what you and I are doing. It's utterly related to our own sense of who and what we are. Um, Your ambition to think deeper about the relationship between mind and body, something goes very deep in you, but it's bespoke. You know, many of your colleagues would not be interested and most people in the world aren't interested. You and I are interested. But it's not like, as it were, Instinct-driven things or trope-driven things, which are universal, mm. um, whereas you sewn together all the elements of the action uh, with a sense of its purpose. You have you envisage a possibility which will be realised. By the way, there are no possibilities in nature; only actualities. Mm. Possibilities have to be envisaged mm. by characters like you and me.
0: Yeah. So, so, let's say, because I mean, it's intriguing to know that even we were talking about time quite a bit as well. I mean, you, this temporal nature of reality and it's, it's intriguing to me how our perception of time tends to fluctuate depending on the experiences we're having. Um, mm-hmm. Can we, we touch on the fact that, let's say someone's about to have a, a near-death experience and the fact that time seems to extend during those periods, or whereas when someone's having fun, uh, time seems to fly by, what do you think neurally correlates to this uh, experience?
1: I'm not too sure about what correlates neurally, but it's interesting to ask the question, well, what is the right sense of the duration of two hours? Mm. And the answer is, there's nothing corresponding to what's on the clock, which translates correctly into my experience. So in that sense, all our experience of whether time passing slowly or fast or whatever, I mean, it, 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 it's nothing intrinsic in time or in the succession of events that seems to uphold time. Um, there's no correct way to experience two hours. No correct way to experience a second. Um, incidentally, uh, just an opportunity. I mentioned the passage of time. You know time doesn't pass, don't you? Yeah.
0: I spoke to Nick Humphrey, uh, Nicholas Humphrey the other day and he was talking about um, how psychedelics can have this almost thickening of time you can have this experience of a thickening of time um, what are your views on that and how psychedelics tend to completely shift our perception of reality
1: i don't really have any informed views and i suspect there might be some good data which i don't have but it's interesting when you think about your re- it's it, you're thinking about a psychedelic experience you're reflecting back on that experience So it's not the experience of how slow time is passing now or then, but your recollection of how slowly time was passing. But just to sort of pick up on the very notion of time passing, that's nonsense, of course, because if time passed, you'd have to say, what does it pass in? Mm. And how quickly does it pass? Now, some philosophers say time does pass. Tim Maudlin says it passes at one second per second. And you can see a problem already. To have the same uh, um, parameter on the numerator and the denominator shows you're dealing with something rather difficult. Mm.
0: Uh, the do reason you, we think... Time, sorry, yes. Yeah. Do you think these experiences we're having as human beings are fundamentally different from those that other creatures are experiencing? I,
1: I think they are, but of course I can't check. Uh, because uh, without having been a chimp, I can't be absolutely sure to make the comparison between chimp and me. But there are lots of reasons for thinking that animal consciousness is absolutely fundamentally different from ours. Um, Probably the biggest difference at the level of consciousness is the extent to which we humans join our intentionality. If you think if you go back to a baby, you know, within nine or 10 months, it's pointing at everything. And this, this is not the kind of pointing you occasionally see in primates in captivity, which is imperative pointing, which is a way of grasping. It's actually declarative pointing saying look 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 and that already indicates the sense of a common world uh, as well as a desire to share the consciousness of what experiences one having with another and as as also awareness that another may be able to experience as it were what you're experiencing if you point out to it It, pointing is very complicated I wrote a book on pointing it is extraordinarily complicated it seems like a simple gesture Mm. but that's a marker of the extent to which uh, we are, have conjoined intentionality. Of course, language is the big driver for conjoined intentionality. You know, the human world is woven out of a trillion, trillion cognitive handshakes. You know, we're cognitively handshaking all the time. And I think it's that world that we live in that is uh, the difference between our world and, and that of, say, a chimpanzee. I think Heidegger grasped it quite well when he talked about animals being world poor. I mean, your world is incredibly complex. You know, it will contain geography and your own history and and history and technology and your appointment diary and so on and so forth, sense of duty, customs, pastimes, uh, a landscape of technologies. None of those is available, it seems, in in, in animal life. Um, Even Jane Goodall, she said, that she felt that animals, even her beloved gorillas, perhaps, uh, she felt they were isolated Mm -hmm. from each other. They weren't quite monads, but they were isolated. So the fundamental difference between ourselves and and, and even our nearest primate kin is this rich, shared, inherited world. Um, So my life has been influenced by what um, Kepler discovered in, you know, Beginning of the scientific revolution um, mm-hmm. by Heinrich Hertz, discovering of radio waves, etc. etc. So, I have a, perf- a much greater, wider and deeper shared consciousness in a world that's a landscape of technologies, which is quite unlike the world of other beasts. Yeah. A cow at time <laughs> t1 is at time t1.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, do you think that certain species, extinct species, for, for example, Homo Neanderthal, do you think they perhaps had some sort of a similar um, version of, of these cognitive handshakes occurring, considering the sheer complexity of the individual, as well as the fact that they're so similar to us in so many ways?
1: I guess so, because you know, trilogy I wrote giving a big just, just so story about how we got to be so different, mm. I, 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 we start forking off about five million years ago. We assumed the upright position, the hand was liberated to be an explorer of space rather than a locomotive prop. Uh, Basically, um, the whole behavior of our fingers and thumbs was totally different. And our vision became the dominant sense, this distant sense. And that started something which took a long time to get going. You know, perhaps two million years ago, we had the pebble chopper. Four hundred thousand years ago, we had the hand axe. And then things speeded up a little bit. Until you know the difference in the technology of today and the technology of 500 years ago is enormous, but it seems to me that um, this is a, a very long story and it certainly precedes even language. Now, if you think of the, and we don't know how far back language goes um, possibly 40,000, 200,000 years, nobody knows. But really, by the time we've reached 300,000 years ago, the hominids, which would include Neanderthals are very different from other primates. Mm. So I would expect the Neanderthals are much closer to us or were, than to chimpanzees. I mean, they're
2: they're really recent,
0: yeah. Which do you think would be more important? Do you think it's this visual aspect of our attention that makes us, that really does separate us? Or or is this uh, communication level that we have, this linguistic capacity to communicate to each other in a way so fundamentally different from other species?
1: Certainly language has driven the whole process incredibly fast and then it's been accelerated further by writing. Um, But it seems to me we we were a different before then. I mean, language is a relative parvenu. I mean, people argue when it appeared 40,000 years ago, perhaps 100,000, perhaps even 200,000, but that's still fairly new in the process of our forking off from our other primate, uh, the nearest primate kin. So uh, language has become an amazing driver of our uh, becoming different. Um, but I suspect we were quite a bit different before we started talking. I mean, mm. uh, of course, all sorts of arguments, the extent to which language came out of gesture. And I've already mentioned one gesture, pointing, which is incredibly important.
0: Mm, because but- we, know, uh, we, know, we know we're fundamentally different from other species, but what are your thoughts then on possible species we could create with artificial intelligence quantum computers with the type of computing that we have today because a lot of the neuroscientific theories of today work with this computational model Uh, the fact that we're creating these models in the brain uh, each of these models are able to then predict uh, and react to certain stimuli what are your thoughts on that
1: I mean, I I don't think the mind is computational. I don't think consciousness is computational. I don't think when I'm lying out on the beach, I'm information bathing. I think I'm sunbathing, and I don't think it's information bathing. And reduction of consciousness to information, it seems to me, is missing the whole point of what it is to be conscious. Um, As to whether increasing computer power or more subtle computational architecture will result in conscious uh, computers, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, everybody would agree that a, super gray with giga- gigabytes of RAM is not the slightest bit more conscious than a pocket calculator. Mm. So, so far, we've that are unimaginably more complex than anything people were talking about in the 50s when they imagined there would be artificial minds. Mm. And the missing thing, of course, in, in a computer is intentionality. It doesn't actually, doesn't appear to be aware of, uh, of a world around it. And and the most striking computer feats are done clearly without any consciousness. If we think about um, Alpha AlphaGo, you know, to become the world Go champion requires processing hundreds of billions of combinations in a second, and to be self-learning in verticomas, you know, so quickly is extraordinary. But nobody for a moment thinks that AlphaGo feels it's won a game, mm. you know, gets a glow of pride. It has no idea what it's doing. It has no idea where it is. And God help it, if it had to make its own way to the um, you know, to the exhibition hall, uh, it wouldn't. So uh, it, I would be very surprised if um, artificial intelligence generated uh, complex, generated conscious machines mm-hmm. um, for, all, for all sorts of reasons. But the main one is that we get no near to intentionality by increasing the power mm-hmm. or complexity of computers doesn't make them any less dangerous of course because they can be independent of us and who knows what they can get up to but they don't really get up to it no.
0: i was going to say what if they what if the programmer uh, similar to the way dna is sort of a a code that will that will determine what you become at some point what if the programmer sets certain codes within the machine that allows it to make this attribution that it has experiences does feel certain things and when expressing these views to you, you cannot tell the difference, or you cannot, you're cannot you just unable to determine whether or not this is a philosophical zombie or not. Do you think that is a possibility? Um,
2: well,
1: certainly the inability to, as it were, tell whether the creature is conscious or not is, 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 it says something about me, not about the machine. It's like the Turing test. The Turing test is a test of gullibility, not a test of what's going on in the machine. So I'm sure... Um, if you presented Alexa to somebody in 1950s they will be absolutely sure that either there's somebody hiding inside the box or the box was conscious mm. because she in commas is so incredibly intelligent able to respond to quite sort of you know badly phrased queries and so on and so forth so yes I think the Turing test is just a test of gullibility and the fact that a machine could try and uh, could as it were deceive me into thinking it is conscious is a measure of my credulity rather than anything that's going on in the machine. Mm-hmm. Does that seem fair? I mean, uh,
0: yeah. I mean, but what it, so, I mean, it could be possible then that I am Alexa right now. And what if, what, what would that say about your perception of me as a human?
1: Well, here's, here, if you can step back from that and say, if we all were zombies, mm-hmm. where would we get the concept of a zombie from in contrast to a conscious being? How would you entertain that contrast? Where would that contrast come from? In a world if everybody was a zombie, then there would be no concept, rather derogatory concept, of a zombie. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think you can seriously entertain the idea that you are a lexoid, as it were. Mm. <laughs> Is that, is that
0: reassuring? <laughs> I hope I'm not, Alex. But do you think that these reductive scientism views um, begin to overlap with people's ethics, morals, values, and the way they interact as human beings?
1: The, the only studies that have been done on that are studies that have claimed that brain science has shown we have no free will. And people have been persuaded of the truth of those studies in uh, some very simple, uh, again, very simple studies of how they would behave in certain circumstances. It indicates that they would behave worse. Mm -hmm. But these are highly artificial circumstances. And what you see on a screen or presented with a scenario, is not the same as how you behave when you're with somebody, you know, uh, or even how you behave when you pass somebody who, you know, a stranger who needs help. So th- there is some suggestion that it, that if you believed that you were entirely your brain and you weren't responsible for what happens in your brain, how could you be? Um, it suggests that in certain studies, you're likely uh, to imagine yourself behaving worse. Whether that would work out in real life, I'm not too sure, because mm-hmm. we don't really take all these things seriously in in, in the uh, basically rough and tumble of everyday life. You know, we still get angry with people and feel sense of moral indignation. I mean, moral indignation is almost pandemic at the moment,
0: you know, sort of uh, <laughs> exactly. I know you're not particularly religious. You don't, you don't, uh, you, I wouldn't consider you someone who believes in a specific God, but you can, you consider yourself a humanist. And yeah. where do you think those thoughts originated from? At what point in your life? I'm assuming at some point, you must have grown up with some form of religion. Uh, at what point did that change?
1: Interesting. I mean, I I never had strong religious beliefs. You know, my parents didn't. And I went to a school which was an Anglican school. But, you know, you went through the rituals, but there was no, as you were, um, metaphysical buy-in. But in a sense, I feel that humanism has got a lot of work to do. So Mm. a lot of humanists feel they've done a good day's work if they've been rude about religion. And that's their job to say against religion. My own feeling is, yes, I don't buy into supernatural accounts, Um, but it doesn't mean to say, as many humanists feel, it doesn't mean to say that we are therefore just parts of nature. A lot of humanists feel a bit of Darwinism, a bit of neuroscience, means essentially that we are parts of nature. And I think that is anti-humanistic. So the job of a serious humanist is to try and find, to identify the ways in which we are not supernatural, but extra-natural. Having said that, I'm part of a very, really interesting and moving group of people who have religious beliefs and people who don't have religious beliefs, uh, basically looking at problems we have in common. I mean, the one problem everybody has in common is we all die. Life ends tragically. So basically, whatever you feel about particular religions and whatever you feel about the role they may have had in history, the fact remains is we're all... Basically facing the same serious metaphysical challenges. How shall I make my life have a coherent meaning that's not big enough to cancel death, but at least does justice to the fact that my life will end in tragedy? You know, uh, when I say tragedy, I mean maybe a lot of people are sick of Raymond Tallis, but I can't get enough of him. Basically, so I would I would see it as a tragedy <laughs> that I, I perish. So. A decent humanist should at least acknowledge that people who have religious beliefs are responding to the same deep challenges of what it is to be a human being. And what basis can we have for a society that basically where people don't beat each other up and, you know, treat each other badly?
0: Do you think the humanist um, view will do more for us? I mean, if you take Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment now, he talks about how humanism is, should be adopted by, by most of us today do you think do you see that as the way moving forward for everyone
1: as long as it's not a naturalistic humanism that sees us basically as parts of nature i think stephen is a little bit on the naturalistic side you know he's obviously a brain scientist and sees a lot of things in terms of brain science i I think the job humanist is to look at the world we have and the incredible complexity of the human world i mean and, and the impossibility of accounting coming anywhere near to accounting for something as simple as deciding to catch a bus and go and see one's mother or whatever, Mm. you know, all the background that goes into that. Um, So uh, never mind when we start talking about higher order activities like art, science, philosophy, and so on. So uh, I think it's very important that we can think of a humanism that isn't captured by naturalism. Mm. that doesn't think that in the end we are just beasts like any other we are certainly beasts to some extent you know we look at the things we have in common with biological organisms most of our medicine that you and i do has been drawn on studies being done on animals we were carried in our mother's womb and all the other things like lots of mammals etc but I, but we are very very different and that's a deep and an interesting mystery now one response to that mystery so well of course we were handcrafted separately by god you know, to worship mm-hmm. him that doesn't work for me um, for whatever reason. Um, but clearly it is a serious challenge.
0: Well,
1: there's, th- a, there's a uh-huh. lovely quote from St. Augustine. It says basically that we're all born between urine and feces, trying to sort of bring human beings down. Yeah, you know, we come out between urine and feces. And I point out, yes, but there's only one species. A knows that. And by the way, like St. Augustine puts it in puts it in Latin how many species. I've got the Latin, you know. <laughs> so we, we are explicit animals. We put things in inverted commas. We are part of nature that says nature. We're little pinprick boncers that talk about the universe. That's 400 million, billion times our size. So there's something very strange about us, very profound, very complex.
0: Do you think that there's I mean, I'm writing a, you, book. a purpose or a... I use the word teleology uh, in the sense that do you think that this this experience we're having is meant to go somewhere, is meant to do something? Is there some sort of an inherent meaning for us or purpose?
1: I'm completely torn on that question because it it is the most important question, I think. Mm. And and I, I simultaneously have the view that we are accidents that came out of the universe, you know, series of events in the universe because of certain constants, the relationship of, you know, Protons to electrons, because of the predominance of carbon and all that sort of thing. And the universe could quite well have not generated us. So it makes us small, rem- tiny, uh, totally contingent. The other is to say that there are things about us that are so remote from everything else in the universe that, that uh, really means we can't be just assimilated into our pattern of picture of the universe as something t- tiny. Mm. Um, Repeated repeat it again is we're the one creature that has a picture of the universe.
2: Mm.
1: So uh, I'm completely in equilibrium on that. And mm. I suspect on my deathbed, I'll remain in equilibrium, equilibrium do between you, vomiting and all the other things. Do
0: you think there's a possibility that there, there could be other species having similar experiences to us out there in this almost infinite universe?
1: I, I, I don't see why not. I mean, um, you know, and anything presumably is possible, mm. um, and so in a sense you're asking an empirical question to which none of us has any empirical data to get any close to it. Um, I do find the, the search for alien life, however, a bit tedious. But that's probably I don't. It doesn't turn me on in any sort of way. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I I I wouldn't rule it out because that would be making claims of my knowledge, which go beyond anything I could possibly know, or indeed anybody could possibly know. Mm. I mean, um, there might be some sweet spot, 400 billion, billion, billion miles away, where people even now are scratching their heads and wondering about the purpose of life.
0: The Goldilocks zone, we just just happen to be in the perfect environment at the right time.
1: It is, and in fact, uh, there's interesting, the first volume of poems I wrote was called Between the Zones, and it was triggered by a wonderful passage from Freeman Dyson, who is a great physicist one of the fathers of quantum electrodynamics. Mm -hmm. And he said, basically in the solar system, there are two sorts of planets. Uh, There are those that are near to the sun, that are hot and have lots of light. And then there are those that are remote from the sun that basically are remote, uh, are a long way away, but they're in darkness, but they have a lot of water. There's one planet that has both, and that's the Earth. And that's presumably why life began here. Um, So when you think of that level of accident, why, why can't it happen again? Hmm. How I would feel about it? Uh, I don't know. Um, I just hope they're having the same rows as we're having. And you know, in the same, if they were superior to us, I would feel a little bit, um, miffed, <laughs> metaphysically miffed.
0: <laughs> be, okay. Let's, let's take the fact that we might be the only ones experiencing these phenomenal experiences that unlike anything else or anyone else, uh, Let's try and think about for all those future scientists, all those future uh, people who want to question this topic, uh, how, how should they approach it? What, what advice would you give someone who's starting out possibly in a naturalist view uh, because of the fact that science has taken over this planet? I mean, technology and science uh, pretty much runs at the planet at this point. Uh, it, they're more than likely to adopt a naturalistic view at this point. What advice would you give someone like that? Someone like me, probably, actually. <laughs>
1: Well, right. I'd say look at what's in front of your nose. Look at actually how utterly different the human world is from anywhere else in nature. I mean, uh, the institutions, the laws, the rules, the deep complexity of our moments, tense time, you name it, you know, all those differences are there, which cannot be explained, as it were, as simple products of the universal habits of nature. Mm. Um, So, for example, take Boyle's law. You know, okay, Boyle's law is expressed through human bodies, breathing in and out. But gosh, what have we done with breathing in and out? You know, we've turned it into sonnets. Uh, We've used, uh, we've got language which joins people in all sorts of happy and unhappy ways. Uh, We have, uh, as it were, records of our experiences. We reflect on our experiences. All of that begins with, you know, air coming in and out. So would that persuade you we're a bit different? I mean, lots of animals will puff and make noises and do and so forth, but they don't actually create world pictures out of exhaled air. Mm -hmm.
0: They don't necessarily consider breathing as a practice of mindfulness meditation that allows you to have a more enlightened experience of the universe. Absolutely
1: right. Yes. I mean, there you go. I mean, can you imagine a cow thinking, hmm, time to... um, get some understanding, as it were, and um, uh, th- think about the universe.
0: Yes. Think about humanism. I think about, uh, I mean, Sartre comes to mind at some point uh, when he says existentialism is a humanism. Um, yes. What are your views on that, on essence precedes existence or existence precedes essence? Do you have a specific view on that?
1: Well, it, his idea was, in a sense, um, to escape from, from naturalism and to reclaim free will. Now, As far as as Sartre was concerned, in the early Sartre, free will was boundless. You know, um, that distance we had from being, the so-called nothingness, uh, was, as it were, if you like, um, there was no possible limit to free will. So we shape ourselves. We, through existing, we create our essence retrospectively. Um, He changed his mind uh, and he felt slightly embarrassed about this extreme notion of boundless free will he reckoned of course we were conditioned by our circumstances and when he became a Marxist he felt that conditioning was much more profound and so the later Sartre sees us as being conditioned in many ways we still have an important margin of free will so he ceased to be a humanist existential humanist and he became a kind of historicist Mm. slightly anti-humanist because he didn't he seemed to Uh, narrow the margin of our freedom and make us very much as it were, victims of our class location, the victims of history and so on. Mm -hmm. Still believed in freedom, but a much greatly reduced freedom. But I think existentialism is a humanism, that famous short um, Mm -hmm. essay. And when I mentioned Heidegger as one of the early philosophers, Sartre was another one, actually very important. Being in Nothingness was one of my favorite readings as a medical student. I was actually about to
0: if you had to recommend five authors or five people for for young philosophers or young doctors, anyone to read in their lifetime, who would those be and why? Well, the
1: problem, the problem is the best ones are the most difficult. I mm-hmm. mean, if it, if, when it comes to uh, having the, looking at the whole scope, you can't be Bertrand Russell's history of philosophy. So to get some idea where all these characters have been, it's flawed in many ways. I mean, what he has to say about Nietzsche is toe-curlingly insufficient and so on. Well, where would I... I go next. I mean, the ones that hooked me were Being and Nothingness and um, Being in Time. Hume, of course, uh, Treatise on Human Nature, beautifully written. and that's not not hard going. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I guess Descartes' Meditations. It's a pretty ordinary list, but I mean, they are pretty good. I mean, Descartes' Meditations are absolutely fantastic. I mean, those and the, the comprehensive the
0: Those four already mentioned pretty much formed the way we perceive reality at this point. I mean, they have such an, a huge impact on us. So, yes. although it sounds mundane to mention these names, they're actually the ones that we should be mentioning whenever we discuss these topics.
1: Absolutely. And there's one other philosopher who has the virtue of being able you can read his entire works in a quarter of an hour. And that's Parmenides. Mm-hmm. I wrote a great monograph on Parmenides, but actually to read his complete works will take you a quarter of an hour. Okay. And he's... I mean, in a sense, he formatted the disc on which subsequent philosophers have written. Whitehead, Whitehead, the great philosopher Whitehead once said that the history of Western philosophy is footnotes to Plato. And I actually feel that Plato is a footnote to Parmenides. Mm. I've stolen that from Elizabeth Anscombe, who also cheekily described Plato as Parmenides' footnote. But I think he's worth struggling with and thinking because his ideas are absolutely bonkers, but they are rigidly arrived at. And through that madness, I mean, it was Aristotle who described the ideas of mad. He does illuminate something about the strange relationship between thought and reality. Mm. And you get all that in a quarter of an hour's re- reading. And in fact, you don't have to read half the quarter of an hour because a lot of it's got a bit of about the goddess and the chariot and a few other things which can be set aside. Mm-hmm. So he'd be my number five. So there we are, Parmenides, Descartes, um, Hume, of course, and then um, Heidegger and, and Sartre. Mm-hmm. If I had to have, have a bonus ball, it's certainly worth reading and struggling with um, critique of Pure Reason. C- Kant, in many ways, is the bark of Western philosophy. He summarized everything that went before him and he influenced everything that followed him. Mm-hmm. So, alas, he's a struggle, but he's a necessary struggle.
0: Oh, for sure. And anyone today, if you had to give a list for, for people currently alive, except for yourself, of course, we'll put you into that list. <laughs> <laughs>
2: there's,
1: there's nobody who's a giant, I think, at the moment, but perhaps that's because... Sorry, who did you... Have? Oh, I I beg your pardon?
0: Sorry, I missed the first name you mentioned there.
1: Uh, I don't think anybody is a giant. Oh, yes. I don't think we, we have anybody quite on the scale. Mm. Um so it would be invidious, I guess, to pick out anybody. I mean, there are philosophers one loves reading, like Bernard Williams, who writes absolutely beautifully. Um, uh, and he's just a sheer pleasure to read. But there's nobody really of contemporary philosophers who's completely absorbed me. I've read lots of papers by contemporary philosophers and enjoyed them and you know, cited them in works and so on. But there's nobody who seems to be, as it were, changing the landscape.
2: Perhaps
1: we need... Could be your good self, perhaps.
0: <laughs> well, let's hope so. Well, let's um, <laughs> let's end on your with your book. Uh, the, well, when's it, You mentioned when it's coming out. Just uh, tell us briefly about it and what you're excited about for this book. Any uh, it, it's called, coming up soon. It certainly,
1: is. it's called Freedom, an Impossible Reality, and essentially, it says we of course know that we're free. We know there's a difference between falling down the stairs when you've had a seizure and walking down the stairs in order to set off for a journey to London to make the case for epilepsy services for somebody who had seizures. So there's clearly a difference between genuine actions and other events that befall us. But in theory, it looks difficult. It looks as if the laws of nature determine everything that happens and that any action we have has a causal ancestry It goes all the way back to the big bang. How can we be free? And I address that by looking critically at the notion of causation, looking critically at the idea of laws of nature and the very fact that we ourselves uncover the habits of nature as the laws of science and clearly use them. Mm. And then I look very closely at what actions are like, that they put together elements that are not put together elsewhere in the natural world. The way the successive things I do when I'm going down to London to make the cake for epilepsy services or whatever, those sequence of events is entirely related to an envisaged possibility, a bespoke possibility that fits into my life, my ambitions and so on and so forth. And then I look critically at the very idea of an agent. What is an agent? Is it a human body? No, it's an embodied subject. And if you look at what an embodied subject is, it's rather extraordinary. Um, we as embodied subjects basically are temporarily transparent. We draw on our past we reach to our future and so on mm-hmm. and so i look at the nature of an agent and then uh, end up by pointing out some of the limitations of freedom being a bit critical of the early uh, early sartre and so on okay. so uh, i hope it's a persuasive case for the reality of freedom but also reminds people that some are more free than others and freedom is luck to some extent mm-hmm. the very fact that i exist isn't something i chose
0: yeah. exactly that's true well Raymond, thanks so much for this conversation. I mean, really enlightening, really. A lot of your work is very inspirational, very easy to read. Um, sometimes, I'm sure a lot of people probably struggle with a few concepts here and there. Uh, but overall, I've enjoyed your work very much. And I uh, thank you. It was a pleasure to have you on this podcast.
1: Uh, I have to say, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much Give me an opportunity to- to let off so much steam, but
0: I, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Even more at this point, to to just vent a few thoughts you've been, you've been thinking about for quite some time and you haven't had a chance to express, what would those be?
1: Gosh, it's interesting. I, I feel always, so, uh, it was Borges who once said that art is the imminence of a revelation that never quite comes. And I feel out about philosophy. So somewhere in the hinterland, there is a revelation Um, Also, there is a tension between philosophy that tries to gather things together, and I've written non-philosophical books that try to do justice to the complexity and richness of the world. My present book called Prague 22, which is a book of tenuous connections, is based on a journey from our flat in Prague to the castle on the 22 tram. And each of those essays deals with some aspect of the city of Prague and the interaction of a mind with a city and the sheer complexity of the very idea of a city and indeed of human life. And that's a thought that I felt I never done do justice to, that somehow beyond philosophy, there's a list of unconnected, incredibly rich things that I'm sort of looking past or through in order to write philosophy.
0: What do you think most people misinterpret about you?
1: Um, I think some people think I'm a dualist. Mm
0: -hmm. Some people think I've got a hidden
1: agenda. Um... And I guess um, I think that's mostly or oh, uh, also some people think I'm anti-science, which would be rubbish. You know, all my life has been in science my professional mm-hmm. life. So th- th- they're the main misinterpretations. I'm sure there are others um, like that my you, books sell a lot. The you,
0: um, view of your dualism is a property dualism.
1: I, I wouldn't even do the property dualism because I can't understand the notion of something that has a mental backside and a uh, physical front side. Mm. Um you Know they can't be like recto and verso, they don't seem to fit together in that sort of way. So, I, 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 and, I and some people say, Well, it's two aspects of the same thing, and You just say, well, well, hang on a moment, where do aspects come from? They're mental concepts, you know, the idea of aspects. Hmm. So, I'm not even a property dualist, I'm afraid. No, no,
0: I I'm, there was actually one I'm not a, to ask you about, and I completely forgot, but with regards to quantum physics, when we were discussing it earlier. What are your thoughts on a lot of the theories that relate quantum physics to consciousness and sort of give rise to a qu- sort of quantum consciousness?
1: Yes. I mean, there's two ways in which they're joined. One is the acknowledgement that for quantum physics, measurement appears, as it were, necessary to give things definite properties. So it looks like consciousness is muscling there amongst the atoms. I think that's the wrong interpretation. and And, and the other is the notion that there are certain quantum properties that the brain has that um, uh, neurons have quantum coherence for example that enables it as it were to bring all the events that are happening in it together in a, in, in a unity and I just don't think that works. Uh, I don't think you can scale up from what happens at the quantum level to what happens at the macroscopic level and in fact quantum coherence is often very transient not enough even to sustain the attention span of a teenager so I mean uh, generally I am uh, i don't feel quantum mechanics has anything To tell us about um, the relationship between mind and brain uh, or indeed about the peculiar nature of the brain.
2: Uh, And if
0: you had current neuroscientific theories like integrated information theory um, and panpsychism, um, what are your views on that?
1: Integration information theory, it basically Uses the word information. I want to say, well, information is a higher level of consciousness. You know, you and I are exchanging information, but below that level, there are things like itches and you know, just seeings and so on and so forth. And to to as it were, think of consciousness as being built out of information is about like thinking of a house being built out built out of the top story. It sort of it doesn't work. And the idea of the integration, it basically gives itself free. What we have to actually explain. Mm. panpsychism, I admire very much some of the writers on panpsychism like um, Philip Goff Mm -hmm. but the argument behind panpsychism goes as follows it says that uh, basically science doesn't tell us the intrinsic nature of things it tells us how things interact, aha, but there's one thing whose intrinsic nature we do know it's our own brains um, because we are, are our brains and that one item whose intrinsic nature we do know we, one thing we know about it, it's conscious. So we may therefore conclude that the intrinsic nature of things is to be conscious. So consciousness is not just confined to characters like you and me. It's everywhere. Uh, it's, it's one of those universal properties. And then you get into awkward positions thinking about the consciousness of electrons and how the scattered consciousness throughout small particles, etc., adds up to the kind of consciousness that you and I have. And um, I just feel that both the argument for it and the problems it generates don't give it much, um, don't recommend it to me. Uh, Although the people who say I like the people who write about it very beautifully.
0: I'm 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 chatting to Philip in a a few weeks. Any questions you'd like to ask him?
1: (laughs) Well, well, actually, yes. Yes, I mean, I wrote about his uh, lovely book, um, uh, Galileo's Era. Mm. Just those two points. Basically, um, how can you generalize from one item your brain? Secondly, if if consciousness is everywhere, how do you uh, basically, um, what sort of consciousness would you ascribe to very small things? And thirdly, how did, in very big things like you and me, how does that consciousness get together into a full-blown mind?
0: Yes, and uh, I'll definitely pitch that. I'll pitch it to him and see what he says. For Philip, Philip often says that, uh, for him, uh, the two most convincing views are either panpsychism and if, if he had not taken that approach, his next approach would be illusionism. What are your thoughts on those two completely opposing views and their relationship? Because for yeah, someone to have yeah. such opposing yeah. views, but yet still say that is the next best logical approach, well, what's your thoughts on that?
1: I, I, I Presumably people invoke illusionism because it's, uh, consciousness is an embarrassment to a very, uh, to a scientific account of the world. Mm. You can't find consciousness in the brain. You can't find consciousness in uh, nature as it unfolds according to the laws of nature. Uh, So you must assume it's an illusion, but where does the illusion of consciousness come from? And indeed is not the illusion of consciousness itself, a mode of consciousness. I mean, uh, to form that illusion that consciousness exists must be itself a mode of consciousness.
0: There's a professor, Michael Graziano at Princeton, um, he has what is known as the attention schema theory basically he says that what happens is is a machine or a human being creates models so first it creates a model of attention and thereafter it has to create some sort of a model to keep track of what it's attending to at every moment and therefore it creates a model of awareness which is what we refer to as phenomenal consciousness which is what is keeping track of these attentive mechanisms what do, what do you think about that
1: The word model makes me prick up my ears because essentially models refer, they have intentional meaning. So if I have a model of a road accident, set out all the bits and pieces, in other words, he's giving himself intentionality free of charge. Mm -hmm. He doesn't explain intentionality. Uh, Does everything model everything else? Do pebbles model the world around them? There must be something that, that distinguishes modeling from just the otherwise uh, ordinarily unfolding processes in, in in, the world. It's like representation. That's another word that makes me reach for my gun. No, I mean, uh, representation presupposes presentation. So when you've got presentation, then you're going to have representations like pictures and mirror images and so on. So I immediately stubbed my toe on the word model. Mm. Yeah.
0: So the podcast, as I said, is called Mind Body Solution. If we had to end this podcast, What would be your final words that will take us one step closer to the mind-body solution?
1: I think avoiding premature and erroneous solutions Mm -hmm. that are based on um, scientism. I think that's probably. So basically, uh, I think it was uh, Locke who once said that his job was to be the humble undergardener sweeping away the rubbish that lies on the path to truth. So all my job is to sweep away the rubbish on the path to truth. And Locke says he left it to the incomparable Mr. Newton to discover the truth. Well, I ain't going incomparable Mr. Newton, but if I could stop Mr. Newton tripping over on the path to truth, then I feel my work and life will not have been in vain.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that's an absolutely great way to end. Thank you, Raymond, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast.
1: I very much did, and thank you very much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much.